0: Austin Pendleton sat down with moderator Eleanor Renfield in November of 1988. I'm Hope Clark, a member of the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, and this is Masters of the Stage. This program is produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theater Wing. Because this program was not originally intended for broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. As a result, portions of the conversation may have been edited.
1: On behalf of the SDC Foundation, I'd like to welcome you to talk with the wonderful Austin Henderson. Yay. Yay. <laughs> Let's start with uh, history.
2: Okay.
1: Uh, in the specific way that only you can, how and when did your involvement with swells of War begin?
2: I remember exactly when it began. October 30th, 1987. Uh, was that I'd been directing a musical out of town in Philadelphia that was on a kind of layover, and then there were some producers who were planning to bring it to Broadway. And it was, uh, it was a uh, musical I was directing and had written the book for. And I'd been working on for a couple of years of The Apprenticeship of Betty Kravitz. And on October 30th, I was called into the producer's office and fired. This was not, and an, an my, my feelings about this were not, were not unambiguously horrible by any means by that point. But still, I had enjoyed working a great deal with the two songwriters on it, and I thought, you know, it was okay, It's pretty good. So I came home, feeling somewhat relieved, and I got a call from Carol Rothman, second stage, who, as you probably know, they were in the middle of a season last year, devoted to the works of uh, Michael Weller, and they'd just opened a production of Moonchild, a revival of Moonchild, then they were going to do a revival of Loose Ends, and then in the spring they would do this new play. And what Carol was asking me is that I would like to direct the new play. Well, my first uh, temptation was just to say yes, because I had directed Loose Ends uh, in, this, in early 1982, the winter of 1982, at uh, Heppenwolf in Chicago, and I'd really had a very good time working with that material, with those actors. And since that time, I, I had been... Uh, uh, very impressed with him as a playwright. So, as I say, my first temptation was to just simply say yes over the phone. But my cannier instincts uh, prevailed, and I said, could I read the script? And, and Carol said, yeah, but sort of hemmed and hawed and kept saying things like, well, all right, I'll send it over. You know it's a first draft. And I said, oh, sure, sure. And, and he's very anxious, you know, after you read it, too talk with you about it, but you do understand it's a first draft. And then we talked a little bit more, and she arranged how to get it over to where I lived and all that. And then as she was hanging up, she said, remember now, it's a first draft. By this time, the alarm bells were going off in my mind. But, so two days later, that would be November 1st, I took it to the park, and I read it. And I didn't like it. I liked the character of the mother, if any of you have seen the play. I I liked that I thought I mean it wasn't exactly like it is now but I saw there was some heat there but I didn't like anything else about it and more important than that even I didn't think it was a play it was a series of scenes of, of the boy some with his mother some with his father and then it ended and I didn't like the quality of much of the writing which really threw me so i got really depressed <laughs> i at that i i uh then now if it had been any other almost any other playwright i probably at that point would have called uh, up uh carol and robin at second stage and said no i'm not interested in this but because it was michael weller whom i knew slightly uh and i mean had gotten to know very slightly when he came out and saw the opening night of loose ends at steppenwolf uh, because it was he I said, they said well, will you meet with him? I said sure. So we arranged to meet the following Sunday which was November 8th which is interesting. So, so our first meeting his and mine was November 8th 1987 which is interesting because the press night the first press night of the Broadway production of it was November 8th 1988.
1: So there in lights 12 months.
2: It to the day.
1: Of extraordinary development and growth, I must say, having seen the workshop in mm-hmm. second stage and the Broadway production, the evolution of the father as a character so changed the whole meaning of the play for me, just as uh, a psychological duality,
2: yeah. a problem for a
1: child to take on as opposed to just this one-sided relationship. Uh. How, when you sat down with Michael, how did you start to translate? Your wonderful conceptual themes into specific building blocks. You
2: mean or uh, rewrites? Uh, uh, the first time I met with him.
1: How essentially was the dialogue between you and Michael established? As the fix-it man.
2: Well, my to my surprise, it started instantly. I mean, I sat down, and he said, "You want to direct this?" This is that first meeting last November, and I said, "Well, I don't know." Where it is, I don't know what it's about. He says, "Well, let's talk about it." So I just began to ask him a few questions. I mean, a few, and within ten or fifteen um, minutes, we had evolved a whole new plot for it. Essentially, the whole idea that the boy would try to get them together, and that there would be the scene where they finally came together, and that obviously it wouldn't work.
1: I mean, none of that was a none bad. of
2: that was. A, there was not even an effort on the boy's part to make that happen. As I say, it was a series of scenes. Some were with his mother, some were with his father. And if there was any line running through it at all, it was just he was sort of trying to find out what they were and who they
1: were. So you were trying to shape a center.
2: Yeah. And then, so we met maybe for 45 minutes, no more that first day. And then he went next door to see that um, House of Games, the David Mamet movie. And the, And as he was going into the movie, he said, uh, when do you have to know? When do you have to read another draft to see if you're interested? How soon? And I said, well, I'm at liberty. I mean, I don't have any plans for the spring. And they, he said, well, as soon as you, if, if you hear that you're going to get anything for the spring, just let me know and I'll show you whatever I've done so far. Well, I didn't hear anything about anything else. And then uh, uh, around Christmas time, in other words, six or seven weeks later, he brought new script, which had the plot that the play now has, the boy trying to negotiate, trying to arrange to bring these two people together, and then a very early crude stab at the reunion scene. Also, in that draft, it began to emerge a little bit more clearly that these people were leftists, had been leftists. And that was very lightly. I remember a, a lot of that draft was in handwritten, and there was one place where there was The Emma character, the Alice Playton character, was talking, and then there was like an insert into one of her lines. There was an arrow, and then the arrow pointed over to the side of the page, and there in the box was a line about that she still has about, I forget the exact line, but how long will some people continue to take everything and not leave anything for the rest of the world, or something like that. And I said, wait a minute, this little insert here, were these people leftists? He said, oh yeah. And I said, and here I may have gotten him into big trouble, I said, well, Michael, you got to, that's got to, you can't just drop a thing like that in. I mean, if these these people were seriously involved with that movement back in the 30s, that has got to have some profound effect on who they are, and even obliquely, anyway, has some very complex effect on the reason for the breakup of their relationship. And... uh, and then I said, I don't want to descend to flattery, but it happens that you do that kind of thing very well. I remembered from Loose Ends, um, and...
1: Weaving a political background?
2: Yeah, weaving a context. I mean, I think he does that as well as any contemporary American playwright. I mean, the whole thing in Loose Ends of, of the Peace Corps and, and and the declining activism and, and the... Uh, The evolution of the me decayed out of the ashes of activism and how that, how that directly impinges on the development and collapse of that relationship in this sense. I think that's just, in that play, amazing. I think it's utterly seamless. I don't think it's quite seamless in Spoils of War. But, uh, uh, although we've worked very hard for the last eight or nine months to try to make it so. But I think he does that just miraculously well. And uh, I think that's a very important thing for a playwright to try to do. And, uh, and also, I've always been hot for the American left. So I got real excited when I perceived that. And then also those two characters began to seem to me a little bit clearer when I saw that that's where they, where they came from.
1: So, product of an illusion and then a Yeah, and
2: also just the specific textures of them. I mean, she seemed to be somewhat like every like those very vibrant young women you used to hear about who were who were who filled a certain kind of function in this, in the Communist Party cells in the thirties in America. The the, 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 the the yeah, all of that. She seemed she seemed to sit very uh, very clearly in that context to me. It kind of illuminated her for me. And, um, and well, I mean, the character of the father at this point was still hopelessly murky, but I, I still thought, hmm. So then I began to look for a book that I had read a little bit of ten years ago and then loaned to somebody and never got it back, and I can't even remember where I loaned it to, called The Romance of American Communism by uh, Vivian Gornick. And I couldn't find it. And significantly... I didn't, no, I found it once at the Strand, but I bought another book about American communism there instead, which looked like it would be richer, and it wasn't. It was just a series of old articles. But this, and then I went back to the Strand, and the Gornick book was gone, but then I went back again this fall, and we were working on it, and I found the Gornick book again, and I read it, and I got it, and I I read it in hours. I mean, it's an extraordinary book.
1: Had you done any other research using the 50s prior to...
2: I read those, those uh, mm-hmm. books about the 50s, but they aren't very helpful. They're, so, they're kind of survey books.
1: Had this book re- been read earlier, the Gornick book been retrieved earlier, would that have fed you any clues? It fed
2: me a lot of clues. and As a, as a, as a matter of fact, it, it directly resulted in a lot of new writing in the play. As soon as I did read it, I gave it to Michael. We talked at length about it, and that had a lot to do with the transformation of Andrew's character.
1: Um, yeah. It was as if he located a source of resistance in him so that his whole action as a character became about actively resisting something. Yeah. So that the the, the confrontation scene was his break as well as hers. Yes. He uh, had something at stake. That's right. He had a facade to maintain that mm-hmm. he hadn't in the original production. Yeah. That, that was the, the Gornick book at work, just the evolution of the process of...
2: Well, I remember... Uh, in, in the, uh, he rewrote the play a lot over, over the summer, he did a lot, and I asked him to introduce a lot of new elements with Andrew, some humor, and, and I wanted to know where these, these new friends of his were, and, and what he did for a living a little bit more clearly, and all of that. And he did a lot of rewriting, but when we opened it in Toronto, we were in previews in Toronto, and we became aware, Michael and I, that essentially all he'd done for Andrew was write um, better lines, but it was the same character. So we sat we sat down one day in between um, a matinee and an evening, and I said, "Michael, we should start all over with this guy." He says, "Yeah," which which by the way was what collaborating with him was like. You would say, you would success, you would propose profound and shocking changes. You'd say, "Yeah, it's a good idea." And then he'd go work on them. I mean, it was there was no there weren't screaming battles or anything like that. He
1: was receptive
2: to the receptive. I've never worked with anybody like that. Well, I have actually. But but he he he, he
1: knew what was right. He wasn't fighting it. No, he
2: yeah he was very he was he was in a very funny place with his play. I think he knew. Essentially, the feeling the play was coming from so profoundly that he wasn't defensive at all about any questions of structure or anything like that. But he not once did we have, I think, even a disagreement, let alone an argument. And um, but anyway, uh,
1: was there was there a back and forth uh, methodology in no. terms of no, in terms of no. first plot and then action, in terms of uh, the rewriting? Does your work? As an actor, help you investigate the action of the character. I from never. The place, and then the
2: oh, clock. That's what I'm saying. No, no. It, uh, what happened sort of the whole time was I would like, we would talk, and then I would suggest something. Or sometimes um, I would do either one of two things. I would either just openly suggest something, or else I would tell him something that I thought was unexplored. I would say this whole aspect. I don't understand why he wants this or why she's doing this in the scene. I just don't get it. Then he would explain, and I would say, I don't get it. Mm-hmm. Then he would go off and write. I mean, one thing I didn't ever interfere with or question or mistrust or anything in, any, in, in, in his writing was his capacity to take any idea we talked about and turn it into a playable scene. I mean, he writes playable scenes. He just does. Mm-hmm. Every once in a while, he would bring in something, and Kate would say... Wait a minute, this doesn't track. And she was, with two or three exceptions, she was always right. And and those two or three times I would say, no, no, you're wrong. Look how this goes here and this goes here. And then she would immediately say, oh, right. Uh, but, But I didn't ever ever question the playability of, of anything. I mean, I would just talk about, as I say, either a specific suggestion or something I felt was lacking, and then he would go off and struggle with it, sometimes for days. And, um, so, and in, in the course of last winter, before we did the second stage, sometimes for weeks. And uh, then he would bring stuff back. And I was directing all, all kind of in the late winter last year, um, Fathers and Sons at the Longwood, the, 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 you know, the Brian Friel play. And uh, I would come home at seven o'clock, I'd get home at seven o'clock, and then after we put our daughter to bed, I'd go, like, every week or two, I'd go out with Michael around the corner to a bar, and we would sit till one or two in the morning and work on the play. And often that involved me asking him about his mother, about his father, about the party, I mean, the Communist Party. He was being fed information from a friend of theirs about their involvement in the party. But the more I researched it, like in the other book I found at the Strand, and in the Gornick book, the more I researched it, I, said, I finally said, I think some of the information you're getting from this man is inaccurate. So you
1: sort of forced him back to his own truth-telling?
2: Well, uh, no, I, I forced him to invent, other, uh, invent the story a different way, I mean, because he didn't know the truth about some of the things about the party. And I said, this, what this guy's telling you cannot be right look and I would show him I mean there's no way the, that any cell of the American Communist Party would have condemned Andrew for going off to fight World War II which was what was true in the spring draft and even early in Toronto they, the, the, the American Communist Party was supportive of World War II
1: so then because after all it
2: was against the fascists
1: you had to then justify another reason for Andrew's intense disillusionment and rejection of the party other than their rejecting
2: him: Well it was it was his disappointment what turned into his disappointment in them after um, he came back from the war that they hadn't moved forward that they had become careerist and elitist and and, and remote from the concerns of the people and and um, uh, if I, I wish we could explore all that even. I mean, some people say there should be lesser, but I think there should be more.
1: But his and, moving to invent uh-huh. that, and stand behind that, and then mm. be challenged by Elise on that point, mm-hmm. was to me the event of what that whole reconciliation yes. was about. It was no longer about the sun in the middle trying to pull two people together who couldn't. It was a, there was an argument of defense going we on. We even
2: staged it differently. At second stage, the sun was right in the middle, and you'd see Kate. On one hand, and Larry Brigman on the other, who was then playing the father, and in the middle you'd see Chris going back and forth. Like Chris plays the boy, and in Toronto, very significantly, he moved Chris over to the side of the stage, so you look at him occasionally. But what you look at is Kate and Jeff.
1: Right, and so their dynamic was what the scene was about. Yeah.
2: and there aren't they great together?
1: Oh, well, he's just a dream, oh. and and you know uh, that's his resistance to some internal like, oh. unspoken truth in that scene that finally got broke I mean he was brought to his knees as, as she was mm-hmm. but before there was nothing to bring him to yeah. he wasn't in opposition to anything within himself he was it's just attitude to her. We,
2: we were I mean it was somewhat concealed in the spring by the fact that he was very well played in the spring but in the, in the writing he was basically just attitude <laughs> he was a certain type of guy you know and it didn't get much past that and that was just a given.
1: Said to me that Olympia's mm-hmm. definition of what a good production is is the right people being in the right room, at the right time, sharing some very profound meaning well, collectively a, in this in yeah. experience. Would you say yeah. that you and Michael, from those long nights in the bars and then bringing it together into the cast, were all plugged into a significant moment in your collective lives? I think
2: whatever you plugged, play, play, significant moment in your collective lives. But some but, people mm-hmm. are not i 've never had an experience, yes, I have one or two, but I have had very few experiences where i haven 't been, probably because i 've been very fortunate with the people i 've worked with but this was clearly a very big moment in michael 's artistic and art- artistic and, and personal life to bring out this material i mean I mean obviously, I think if you were from just out of town somewhere, didn't know anything about theater, and saw this play, you would just, from the evidence of the play, you would know that the character of the mother in this play is a very hot, is, is a is, is a source of heat to this writer. Uh, because the whole play, I mean, the only character in the play who's who, who's... Whose life is not hopelessly bent out of shape by the force of this woman is the girl, and even hers obliquely is, but um, but the and she only exists as a kind of a polarity to the mother. Anyway, but the other the other four characters their whole lives are bent way out of shape by the presence and force and ambiguity of this woman, and uh, that I think is and has always been the strongest thing in the play and the most uh, Successfully and originally dramatized. I mean, when she says it to the end, Andrew, come to me, it is a profoundly ambiguous moment. I mean, part of you thinks, oh, yeah, just here she is, she's arrived at this, and part of so part of the audience thinks that's, and part of the audience thinks, don't go near her. <laughs> don't go get shredded. And and think
1: some part of the audience thinks that that is also supreme strategy on her
2: part? Some of them think that, and some of them think it's, no, that this, the, the woman has finally come to a point where she can really say that. And the wonderful thing is that all of those things are true, just like, as they say, in life.
1: And the fact you know? that you can't is one of the wonderful things that's true
2: also, and makes the scene mm-hmm. a, a dual scene. And and, and and But yet he comes a little bit close. It's not... He's so torn up that it's not impossible that at that moment he could go to her. It, it's funny, but it is impossible. I, I,
1: I think that I, I mm-hmm. never expected that he would, but what I was interested in was why he would say he wasn't, and what I got from him that told me the truth about why he wasn't. I never for a minute really thought he was going to surrender to her. But what was interesting was how he chose not to at that moment. Yeah, what was available to him.
2: But also something that Jeffrey plays, which is very good, is that when she leaves and he's alone with Martin, and he's al- and and hears footsteps, and it's the girl coming back in. He whirls around, and, he, and then he goes like this. He thinks it's it's Kate Nelligan coming back, and uh, he he the whole thing that informs the way Jeffrey plays that life scene, and he found this himself, is that, God, if she would just come back. I mean, he couldn't go to her at that moment, but it's going to be a long... I mean, this has reopened all the old wounds. In the first act now, you see him, he's a fairly together guy.
0: He's got
1: his struggle intact. Yeah,
2: he knows how to deal, he knows what he's going to get from life, what he's not going to get from life. He knows how to keep certain things at arm's length, he knows how to let certain things in, and then gradually, as it gets he finds out Elisa's coming to the party, and then as she comes, and then he just... All the wounds starts to open up again. So the
1: evolution Mm -hmm. of that progression from his best intended mask Mm -hmm. to the real, Mm -hmm. you know, torments that lay beneath was that... Would you say that that was the major progression of the New York, Toronto, New York?
2: Yeah, but a lot of that happened within Toronto. I mean, as I say, he did a lot of revisions over the summer. But then we found out once we had it up on the stage that he hadn't really addressed any of this. So we did a lot. I mean, we. I mean, I don't think Jeffrey has a scene. By the end of the Toronto run, he didn't have a scene that was the same as it had been when we opened in Toronto. I mean, in other words, his whole part was rewritten.
1: But but that mm. was a Toronto experience. Very intense. And that was going back to an organic root, as opposed yeah. to kind of slopping on new
2: lines. Oh yeah, no, that was let's start these scenes all over again. on the, and the and the Gornick book helped a lot. And as I say, I, I, if I had 1988 to relive, that's the book I would have bought at the Strand in the spring rather than that other bu- book that I bought.
1: Let's talk a little bit about mm. the rest of the cast. When, when you cast a production, do you get an innate sense from the actors that they are connecting to this play from a profound source or that they're just available
2: for the part? When I ca- you mean this particular play? Well,
1: you once said that your experience in casting was that you like to read, nothing, that you like to read uh, with actors yourself. Yes, I do. To see if there was a connection going on independently of just their preparation for the audition.
0: Yes. Subsequently,
1: when I read the Kazan book this summer, I found out that before he used to cast, he would take people out for dinner.
0: Yeah.
2: get to
1: know what he was getting into. Yeah, right. Um, Maybe
2: I'll move to that.
1: <laughs> but, but you did yeah, say yeah, that, yeah. that as an actor, not letting the a stage manager do the, you know, audition, but as as the co-reader, uh-huh. that you were finding a great deal oh, about yeah. the people, and that it's, that you have instinctively pulled people, which is why I think you have a reputation as such a democratic director, that you've instinctively pulled people into a company who were there because they needed to make that contribution to the play themselves from a personal place, as opposed to being a strategic. You yeah. know, A-plus for you in snaring a certain actor who was hot at the moment.
2: Mm-hmm. I cast the lead in Fathers and Sons last year because the guy wanted the part so badly he could barely speak. <laughs> <laughs> and it I mean, it, like it wasn't it wasn't like there was eight, six other magnificent actors waiting in the wings, but it was down to two or three people, and this guy was inarticulate with his need to play this part. It went way beyond... It probably included the manipulative, but it went way beyond it. And I thought, oh... I mean he's got he's obviously got something to say here so let's use it
1: what uh, brought uh. you toward Peyton Nelligan, who, till this point had a very somewhat dour and imperious role of series of roles as nothing hot sexy and
2: I had a dramatic. friend in early 1980s well I had a friend who I met a few years ago who 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 had a lust lust for Linda Hunt lust i mean he, he would come to me. His eyes glazed with lust, and describe these dreams he'd been. Had. This <laughs> tall Irishman. He was just obsessed with her. Finally, she was in the Wally Shawn play, uh, and, Dan. and and then just after after that evening, Wally was in your house with Debbie. And um, uh, and and I so I called my friend. I said, "Look, why he was teaching at the University of Vermont. I why 'Why don't you come in and I'll get you a ticket.'" and we'll go out after what he... There was a pause while he fainted on the other <laughs> end of the line. So, I called Linda, and I said, no, and I told her about this guy, and I said, coming. you'll see the show. I'll come down afterward. We'll go out, please. It's just the three of us, right? This guy, all he thinks about now is this evening. She said, well, I don't know how I'm going to handle this. And I said, nothing. It's just the three of us going out to a restaurant, but please. Okay, so as it happened you couldn't get into the show I had to sit all afternoon in the lobby of the theater that day and wait for quick ticks at 6 o'clock uh, and, and, so, and so I was doubly concerned that it just be the three of us and all this so I go down and there is Kate Nelligan whom I don't know but whom I knew enough about to know she's obviously a very dominant personality and I thought oh for Christ's sake Kate Nelligan comes over and says hi I'm Kate Nelligan and I guess I'm going out with you all. I thought, oh, Jesus, God. I can't believe this. I was furious internally at Linda. <laughs> and Linda threw me a look that conveyed, I didn't know, you know. So we went out. And Kate, whom I had, I say, had never met, swiftly perceived the peculiar dynamics of this evening. And... Uh, and I thought she was wonderful. I thought, I mean, she didn't fade into the wallpaper, which would have been uh, unconvincing of her to do, because, I mean, she's a very, you know, uh, very alive personality, so she didn't pull an act of, well, I'm not here, you, you all just do what you have to do. <laughs> and, yet, and yet she, and she was very present and very there and very charming and very funny, and yet very... In, in a way that I find very hard to describe. She, her energies fit right into the event. And, and uh, she helped to lift it. I don't know, it was wonderful. It turned out to be wonderful she was there. I remembered all that two years later when we were casting Spoils of War.
1: What did you see that night that made you immediately associate a lease to Kate? And was Michael receptive to that at the beginning?
2: No, he wasn't. And I had her rent some of his movies. I said, see one called The Eye of the Needle that I saw once on a plane. And he said, well, it's, she's good, but I mean, it's not the Elise. I said, well,
0: you,
2: yeah, but you, you, but that night we went out, she was great. And she'd be wonderful in the part. He would say things like, but I wasn't there, Austin. <laughs> and this is the leading role in this play. I said, well, I don't know. You just..." have to trust me on this I felt rather foolish even as I said it but I knew see one thing I didn't want I wanted Elise to come upon the audience so they'd never seen her before so I didn't want us to cast an actress even a very fine actress who would give a performance that the audience had already seen a variation on in the actress's work yet obviously for the role you needed a very charismatic actress so what we needed was a very charismatic actress who people already knew, but they'd never seen this from her. So, in fact, they were seeing this whole charismatic new person. That was what I wanted. So
1: I'm correct in then assuming that Kate's reputation up to this point has been much more oh, cultural, yeah. less generous.
2: Yeah, and very dark and, and, and un you know, Yeah, and and and, um, uh,
1: uh, and yet you knew that in there was the true Elise.
2: The, I'd, seen Kate. I'd seen it. Well, then, I'd, then, I'd seen it. I'd seen it. So
1: then what happened? It
2: was like when I worked with Victor Mature in a movie a few years ago, and he was a comedy, and I realized that all these years that he was playing Samson and all this, inside was this marvelous comic actor wanting to get out. <laughs> and and in Kate, when I'm, I recall when I met her that night, three years ago now, I I thought inside this severe persona that we've all been seeing over the years in her film and, 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 and stage work has been this kind of joyous complicated quirky figure trying to get out well we've got the part to bring it out I said to myself
1: but how do you then proceed
2: well, I you find... don't
1: audition Kate Nelligan or did you
2: no 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 I, besides I hear she doesn't audition well uh, <laughs> which
1: is a, an, another problem. Yeah. When, when an Austin yeah. Pendleton-type director yeah. has this passionate, instinctive feeling <coughs> yeah. buried inside this person is the part. There you have your producers, you have your playwright who's alive, mm-hmm. and you have to, you know take it upon yourself to seduce people into your vision.
2: Well, I just, finally, what sed- there are two things seduced Mike. First of all was, he said, well, look, she clearly has had an effect on you. Let's, let's, let's send her the script. I said, look, if we send her the script, Mike, I'm not responsible for what happens thereafter. If she says she likes it, we're going to hire her. I'm not going to then call her up and say, I'm se- say you know, just kidding, you know.
0: <laughs> and, and,
2: uh, uh, and, uh, uh, so I said this is a big segment. he says well clearly this woman I mean you're, you, he said you're willing to really put yourself on the line for this I said yeah I really am convinced this is who we have to have and I, and I can't think of anyone else who could bring to this what I know she could bring and uh, uh, and um, uh, so then the other thing and then, then we arranged for one night at 10 o'clock at a bar this time across town where I arranged there was the three of us met and it was the only, the first time I'd seen her since that night, that crazy night with Linda.
0: Huh?
2: <laughs> and, um, um, the, uh, uh, and around this time, Linda came to our house for dinner one night last night. And she said, oh,
1: I hear you might use Kate.
2: And I said, yeah. she said, oh, I hope so. I hope so. She said, can I call her up and tell her I hope she does it? And I said, be my guest. This was, as a matter of fact, the night before Kate and Mike and I met in that bar across town. And uh, uh, so Kate came very frightened to the meeting. Uh, they just closed uh, serious money and um, quite abruptly. And, uh, and uh, she was very depressed from that and frightened from that and wanted to part, I think, Mike was very depressed because he just, had just learned an hour before that they had prematurely had to close the revival of Loose Ends at Second Stage because nobody but nobody was coming to see it. And uh, here were these two very depressed people. In a, each ba- in a bar. In a bar, each frightened of the other. Him thinking, is this woman actually going to play my mother? <laughs> and her thinking, is he going to let me play this part? and me there kind of sitting and babbling. And, uh, uh, and then... Uh, but gradually things warmed up. And, it, it, and, and uh, it wasn't... She wasn't the way I had remembered her that wonderful night with Linda. Of course, that may have had something to do with the presence of Linda, too, which makes people behave in a, in a ingenuous way. But uh, And also, at that occasion, there was no one up for a part, you know. But uh, the... Um, Uh, but she was more reserved this time, but still fascinating and complex. And, uh, he was, he was funny and guarded, and I babbled, and we went on like this for two or three hours, and then, uh, finally he stood up and rather abruptly said, well, are we going to work together or aren't we? She said, well, it's all right with me, and, you know, sort of like that. And, uh, it was sealed. And, um... Um, and
1: from there, did the rest of the casting proceed? Once you knew you had a lease, were you lining up
2: Oh, then I the just satellite? began to audition people. Now, in that case, I would often... I mean, I, I would read with all of them originally, but I had her read opposite everybody in the callbacks. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was it? good for her, too, because at first she was real shy, and then she began to get more relaxed with it. I'm
1: sure mm-hmm. Alice Clayton is your idea. No! Is
2: that right? I wish it were. Oh, uh-huh. I wish it were. I wish I could honestly say that Alice played was mighty, because you but and even Alice after yeah, Alice last and, last and I have done two things Isaac. together: last week, Days of Isaac, and we played Adam and Eve in that Arthur That's Miller right. musical.
0: It's
2: and and it was um, uh, uh, and I mean <laughs> she she's a she's brilliant and I love her, and b she's uncannily right for the part. And it wasn't mighty, and even after she auditioned and was called back, she was not my candidate. But Kate said that day at the callbacks, you know, that Alice is very impressive. I said, yeah, well, I don't think she read quite as well as X, Y, and Z. And, uh, 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 yeah, but there's something very impressive. That girl has obviously, has, a, has survival in her. She's clearly survived something. Well, which is the truth. I mean, she's survived a lot of things, Alice. And, and it, it, um, it was a very perceptive thing to say because Kate was meeting her for the first time. And then I said to Mike Weller, well, what do you think? He said, well, and, uh, once again, he said to me, it's up to you, but that, he said, Alice is exactly what I wrote. And I said, oh, what the hell. She's, she's, she's a ta- she's wonderful. She'll, she'll get it somehow. So I'm, I'm ashamed to say that I was the last holdout on that. And I, of course, um, actually what I ought to have done was to just take credit for it.
1: Not, not anymore. This is going to be published.
2: Oh my God. Well, um, but Alice knows. But it's sure. an interesting phenomenon uh, having
1: yeah. a leading character who's already cast be at all of the auditions and callbacks because this goes back to what I said before that you used to take the position of reading with actors, but that somewhere in that in somebody else's mm. perspective a connection is being made that is no longer just about a good reading; it's about a connection. Yeah. And. Uh, that seems to be one of the things that moves you forward through casting sessions, which as I said before, makes your your casts very often unique, mm-hmm. not lined up by their latest credit. Mm-hmm. Is there anybody else in the company that, that came out of that profound personal connection, aid to the material, or decayed in the readings, or your instinct?
2: Well, I wanted Chris Collet from the first. He was nobody else's first choice. And we finally started to pursue everybody else's you first choice. Of, you
1: know, Matthew Rodgers. No, no, you no, 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 of no, no, no,
2: no, I didn't want, the only person I wanted the audience to really, really have a strong previous knowledge of was Kate, was Elise, but, um, no, um, but we did, uh, they all had somebody, uh, I, I, I mean, Kate really responded to another boy, and so, and so did, uh, Mike Weller, sort of the same boy, and so did Carol Rothman. So I thought, well, all right, I like Chris Coulay, but what the hell. And uh, so we went after him, and then this kid, well, I don't know, I might get a TV series. And I was calling him up from Long Wharf at midnight, pleading with him to take the part, and he was like 12 or something. I was, I, I, I was, I, I, I was beginning deeply to resent this. And then, and then uh, so finally, um, and... and um, um, and he would play with me on the phone. He would say, well, I'm just going up to see my mom. Of course, she's separated from my dad. And then I was supposed to say, well, God, what? A you've got to play this part. You obviously have such a connection with it. But I, didn't, I finally stopped jumping through those hoops. And I said, well, look, we need to know by Monday. Will you just let us know? I would tempt myself with that. And so he let us know, and he turned us down. And then... We were able to go with Chris. Chris, in the meantime, however, when it looked like we might lose this kid, was called back in to read again, because he was, he, he was the one I wanted. So they said, well, let's call in Austin's choice again and see if maybe he's any good. And uh, he had the very good fortune the day he came in again to read opposite Annette, who played Penny in, the, in second stage, Annette uh, Penny. And that was dynamite. <laughs> that was just an extraordinary... Uh, um, uh, connection. Like, you, you the day I got the part in Oh Dad was the day I read opposite uh, Barbara Harris. I had read the play six times for them. The day I read opposite her, I got the part. She fired
1: you up there. She, she gave. She generated something that. happened. Right. The same with Chris and Annette. It, just, that was, was, that it just was. was it was. We yeah. About, it was dynamite. It's hard when there's just like yeah. you know somebody who was. You know, rented for the day.
2: Yeah, right. And Annette got the part the same day. I mean, Annette was a callback. But she'd come to read for me originally, and I liked her. She's clearly a very impressive actress. And and I'd been impressed enough to call her back, and I didn't call back that many people for that part. But Chris and Annette together was just like, it vibrated.
1: When you made two um, cast replacements mm in Toronto and then ultimately Broadway, how did you maintain the fine tuning of the ensemble? that I felt was very operative at the second stage. It was a real company feeling. Well, I I think... I don't...
2: I think that if you just work hard with everyone and try to really bring everyone out, usually in the presence of the other people, but also privately, you get an ensemble, unless there's some kind of pathological case in there somewhere. Sometimes even then. (laughs) Uh, But... uh, Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't, um, and also these are all very generous people. I mean, sometimes it's harder than other times. In this case, everybody was very embracing of everyone else. Um, and so in each case, in each of the two productions, there was no particular problem. And there's also, I guess, something with material like this where you think, um, where everybody knows that everybody else is having to go very deep for the performance so everyone knows they're in the same boat together and everyone is having the same experience and therefore they become very supportive of each other and the, it's one of those places where they all need each other up on the stage right. there's no way around it
1: and I imagine are very grateful to the other person for doing the thorough psychological research to mm-hmm. get on target
2: yeah so yeah. that
1: two new cast members can come in who haven't been there all along but if they're getting to you know yeah. the point yeah. It makes the scene get to the point.
2: And, and and also, with each, I mean, obviously, I didn't, I mean, I even completely restaged and reconceived this time the scenes that had the same people in them as before, but, 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 but certainly with the new people, it just like we started rehearsing the scenes again, as if they'd never been done before. That was a we very back to square special
1: one. experience to have six weeks out of town. Most people don't mm, get that opportunity. Oh, it's wonderful. So, a kind of a throwback
2: yeah. to the 40s.
1: Yeah, New I know. And Philadelphia. I know. So would, and you rec- would you say that it's a highly recommendable?
2: Sure, it's great. I mean, we, we were under pressure too. I mean, our reviews in Toronto were the worst reviews you've ever read. They were. They were all like John Simon. They were. They were. Uh, every one of them. And they were worse. They were. They said things like uh, uh, laughably inept. <laughs> the the whole show was laughably enough and on the mitigated disaster they said things like that so that helps to create an atmosphere of togetherness you're all under that kind of attack together
1: let me ask you Mm -hmm. just uh, two or three questions about design
2: a sad homecoming for Kate the Great she's Canadian
1: Uh, fortunately the New York reviews including the one I just read in seven days that started with the word victory yeah yeah you know put that to sleep yeah. And we don't have to think about John Simon doing
2: it. We? we don't have to. You no. <laughs> no, don't have to. No, no.
1: When you're um, reading a play generally, what are the hmm. kinds of clues that you pick up from the text that, that evoke a visual style? And, oh,
2: and this play is the hardest play in a visual sense I have ever worked on. I mean, I sort of developed a crazy idea for it when we did it uptown at second stage. Uh, almost sort of informal idea for it at that time, there was a kind of div- uh, a device that framed the play the, the, the play began with the with the boy as an older man who 's breaking up with his wife, and she walked out on him and then and then the, and then the ghost of the mother came in and, and kind of led him back through all of this and then at the end, he reunited with his wife and it started around a a table in the, in the kitchen of him and his wife, so I thought, make the whole play be around the table in every scene, and so it could just kind of flow around there and have the effects of, of, of the mother's apartment be on one side of the table, the effects of the father's on the other. Well, that worked for... Well, some people didn't think it even worked then, but it worked... If it worked at all, it, it, ser- it worked for that kind of a theater, that second stage is obviously... You couldn't do something like that on Broadway. And then Andy Jackness came into the picture, with whom I've worked a lot before. And, and I was directing the American clock up at Williamstown, and he came up, and we talked for hours one night, and then he went back and did a couple weeks of work, and I came back into town. We began having these meetings, and I thought the man was going to go mad. Every idea I c- he came up with, I said, no, you g- can't do that. What were you searching for? Well, first of all, purely mechanically. I mean, easy transitions back and forth. You couldn't have a set that didn't ever move because then all the Andrew scenes would play over here and all the Elise scenes would play over here, and that, first of all, would get very boring after a while, and secondly, it meant like the whole reunion scene would take place over on one side of the of the whole stage, and you just couldn't have that. And um, but on the other hand, like a turntable that went all the way around was kind of silly and too much, and we just. Went through, and we had tried sliding platforms coming in. I, I once threw, uh, I mean, uh, um, um, again at this bar, his eyes glazed with despair as I did all this, <laughs> thinking that there was no way to make this work. And then finally, late one night, he called me in July and said, all right, I have something, and I have even made a model of it so you can see. And he showed me what we now have, and I said, oh, okay, we can, we can, we can really work with this.
1: So, in addition to mm-hmm. the Broadway money,
2: yeah,
1: the uh, the whole visual style of the production changed drastically. from...
2: Yeah, it it has it has it has. And
1: does that ultimately mean that the the style itself of the play changed for no, you?
2: No, not really, not really. I don't know. I uh,
1: you would you would call this a naturalistic play?
2: Yeah, I guess I would. See, when it was as I say, when it was first designed in the spring, it had the framing device, and the mother first coming in as a ghost. Right. Which you couldn't really do on this set. Right. I mean, either mechanically or, or stylistically. Which is
1: Some of the reviews were confused. That's why I asked you to was considered naturalistic, because it seemed that there was a dichotomy between the suggestion of surrealism in the visual environment, mm-hmm. and then this very solid naturalistic performing going on in front of this frame.
2: I think they're right.
1: And I think that... <laughs> but but the, the Broadway production has no attempt at any stylistic fancy dancing.
2: Well, it does, though. You know, it has all those mobile. black screens and but transparency. But that's
1: facility. That's not...
2: No, but all those... That, that whole maze back there, and you see people sort of behind it, and I don't know. I, 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 I'm a little confused about it. I I'm surprised that virtually every critic thinks that Andy's set looks so ugly. I think there's some beautiful looking and very evocative and powerful. And I, and I like it. I, I like it. But I wish that we had either gone a little further or not gone quite so far with the elements that are, mm-hmm. are stylized in the set. They're, they're not quite, they're certainly not realistic, but they're not quite stylized either. I mean, everything except the actual rooms themselves, that whole, whole, whole maze of black scrim back there and... I mean it took us half the tech rehearsal for people to find their way through those things to get on stage so
1: it sounds to me like just the facility of being able to move from scene to scene in environments that were as close to the reality yeah was really what you were looking for.
2: yeah at in yeah a way it was. That was
1: just not you know self-conscious
2: well also one thing i said to andy that i think he's he's done beautifully and paul gallo <coughs> who, who did the lighting uh, is that I said it should ne- it, we should never be completely in one place. You should always it, it should always be visually unresolved. That you and and you always see a little part of the other place when you're in the one place. But it's this constant. T- the haunting of one place by the other that doesn't ever resolve itself in the whole evening.
1: I actually found it a very moving juxtaposition that, I first of all, it wasn't until this version mm-hmm. where I actually assumed that, that Andrew had some money.
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah, we had, were able to bring out things like that. That there was like a that.
1: real sense of a man, you know, in a rambling upper west side apartment with yeah. books and furniture. Yeah. And she was in this neon-lit hobble.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think that's very beautiful.
1: And that was never very very clear to me that he was no. in a position to really financially help almost effortlessly.
2: Yes, people. yeah, and, and that, yes, that makes a wonderful statement. I don't, I don't understand why that set has come under such a tack. And it has, in the press, it, it hadn't, I mean, also I was unprepared for it because I hadn't heard that you hear, before the show opens, you, know, you hear everything that's wrong from everybody, but I never heard that one uh, from, any, from almost anybody, and certainly not to anywhere like the degree, but it's been virtually the theme of even the good reviews.
1: It's very hard in, mm-hmm. in plays where the uh, social and psychological environment is dense and dark mm-hmm. to make it look like, you know, the real thing. Lights up on a white living room. I know. Very I Very gleaming know. people, well dressed. I know. That wasn't what
2: this was about. Um, Olympia had an insight about this on the phone last night. She hadn't. She saw the show this spring. She hasn't seen this production. But I described the set to her in great detail last night on the phone. And I said, I just don't understand. I saw the show again Friday night for the first time since it opened, first time in two weeks. And I, I thought, you know, a lot of this looks really dramatic and interesting, and sometimes quite beautiful. And original. I don't, I don't see the problem. And um, uh, and I got sort of depressed and you know paranoid and all that. And uh, and I was I was describing the set to Olympia, and, I, and she said, "Well, she says it sounds like there's a lot of unresolved uh, uh, tension in the set." And I said, "Yeah, there is." Very much so. First of all, the fact that you're never completely in one room, but also just the, the look and the way the colors go together and the, and the looming kind of darkness of it. And yeah, there's a lot of unresolved tension in the set. And, and she said, well, and then we, we began to talk to each other. What she remembered about the play from the spring, we agreed that there's also a lot of unresolved tension in the play, and there is a lot of unresolved tension in this play. And there's a lot of unresolved tension in the performances and there 's no catharsis, and finally it just gets too much That i mean i don 't know it doesn't in fact get too much, but that 's why some people would be bothered. they would want the visual aspect of the show to be a release for them right. more, from the from the
1: fairy tale
2: yeah play. from the really the play is very disturbing. it never lets you off the hook it never you you, you are left with only a kind of a, kind of a deeper sense of the very unresolved feeling you start out with in it.
1: Well, I I think the set very accurately
0: Mm -hmm. reflected
1: that, and I think that that you just, for your own self-justification, that Mm -hmm. that desolation is up there visually. Mm -hmm. We have just a couple of minutes. I want to just ask you, number one, uh, what your plans are both in acting and directing for the future, what kind of work you'd like to continue to do, and in answering that, if you could find a magical way to weave in how you came into both fields and which you prefer over the other and for what reasons. Past, present, and future,
2: all in five minutes. Well, uh, if I had to choose, if somebody came to me and said, for the rest of uh, your working life, you can only do one of those two things, I can pick Jackman. It's the one I couldn't do without. Uh, but I hope nobody ever makes make that choice. Uh, because obviously, you know, we all know, it's very exciting to direct. Um, uh, how I got into directing was I was uh, up, yeah. up in Legion Town one summer where I worked a lot in 1969. I was up there as an equity actor for the whole summer. And Nico Sakharopoulos said, Why don't you direct too? Because he'd been talking to Bobby Lewis, in whose acting class I've been a few years before. And Bobby had said um, uh, that he liked some of the directorial ideas of acting scene, I've and so he thought, well, let's give it a shot, and he let me direct a play up there, and uh, I've been directing it since. And, uh, uh, but I've always tried to not, I've, I've never tried to move away from acting at all. I really, it's very important to me, it's in, in her, uh, uh for reasons almost beyond the artistic experience included Mm hopefully um
1: do you think you have more choice in determining your future projects as a director or as an actor
2: i don't think no uh i don't there doesn't seem to be too much choice either way um at the moment i just played in a in a uh, workshop i played the title role in hamlet at the riverside at the riverside shakespeare company which they asked me to do that was never i don't i don't have a list as an actor but that would never have been on it it never really occurred to me and we're going to do it again in the spring for a month up there and that's important that's the only thing i know for a fact that i'm doing Uh, uh i don't i get i turn down a lot more work as a director than i do as an actor um I I I have a ten year as a director for hits. I really do. I'm I've turned down some big hits um, just because I didn't want to. Um, yeah, I, and I don't ever think I'm going to enjoy directing something, and then I usually do enjoy it. And I mean, I I mean, you can offer me an interesting part, you know, just so long as it isn't an Austin Pendleton part, and I'll do it. No. But, but directing, um, and I'll get excited about the prospect of doing it, but directing, I always think, oh, it's just going to be such hard work, and oh, God, and what if... Um, I, I, I fell out of my seat, and, and I wanted to do the Brian Friel play last year, Fathers and Sons, So that was one of the few that I read that I thought, I've got to do this. And um, The American Clock this summer, Arthur Miller's play, that I've always wanted to do that. And indeed, I think that's the best show I've ever directed.
1: When you were offered the Little Foxes, was Elizabeth Taylor already with the...
2: Oh, (laughs) yes, yes. It wasn't the Austin Pendleton production of Little Foxes and shall we get Elizabeth Taylor? (laughs) (laughs) That's not how it it came to be. And and, uh, no, it was... And I wanted... And I didn't particularly want to direct that play. I'd been in it in the Mike Nichols production and I... And so I said, well, let me go home and read it and uh, if I can think of a new idea for it I mean, an, an idea new and original to me for it, then I'll, I'll consent to be interviewed by Ms. Taylor and Ms. Hellman. And I went home and I did. I, I remember I, I read it on the floor of the bathroom late one night, Dina was asleep. And I thought, oh God, these brothers and, si- these brothers and their sister, they would rather have married each other than marry the people they married. That's what the play is about. And I got all excited. So I went in and told that to Zev, the producer, and he said, great. And then I told that to Elizabeth, and she said, great. I didn't tell it to Lillian, uh, 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 but what I told her was, I said, I, said, I know who should play the older brother in it, uncle, the uncle, uh, uh, Ben, and she said, "Who?" Oh, I said, Mike Nichols should play it. I don't know what I would have done if he accepted the part, but, I mean, I would have been very scared, but I, but I thought it was a, that's who it should be. She said, that's brilliant, Austin. <laughs> smoking away and and I think and I and I know I'm con- I'm pretty sure that's the moment in her mind when I got that job but so I figured um, okay these two brothers are in love with their sister and she with them and they have the there's a real sexuality in the way they cheat each other and all of that and they they don't care if they dis- they don't care about the people they're married to and they don't care about the town they live in or anything like that it's not that they're out to destroy it they just don't care all they care about is each other and proving to each other getting one upmanship on each other they're in love and uh Did you
1: get this excited
2: yeah and uh, then i was then i couldn't wait to do it i, was, well, it, do you, I also thought of it, but she was brilliant casting for it i was very excited about that
1: do you uh, have to make that visionary leap before you go into
2: rehearsal yeah now it was no, tricky with Spoils well, of war of that play I yeah i 've got to have my own story to tell and, and now, in spoils of war, it was hard because it, it the play was always being written. There was never a moment in either production where I sat down with the play and had a vision because the play I would sit down with the play and say, "But mike this scene isn 't clear yet and we 'd go out to the bar and we 'd talk and <laughs> and I would say, and we the reunion scene kept on developing, and i 'd say but Elise has to challenge him. She has to offer him a challenge he can't handle. So he'd, he'd go in, and two days before rehearsal, he'd write, Have you forgotten the night you trembled in my arms and cried and all that? And, I mean, it never, there was never a kind of a moment where the play was in my hand, ever, including in Toronto this fall. And it was always, I was always sort of, I so I never had, like, a vision of this play. It was just, like, constantly, constant problem-solving. It was Problem solving with one of our best playwrights, with a great actress, and with a superb cast and a brilliant designer. So, I mean, I'm not complaining, but but that's what and the most dreamed producers. If any of you ever get a chance to work with the Mervishes from Canada, I mean, you'll die in their arms. I mean, that's the produce. I mean, it, I earned them after the producers we had for the Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz. This was my reward. Was was to uh, was to work with the Mervishes. They're just perfect. I mean, they they leave you alone then they step forward and they say the one thing that you really need to hear that clarifies a whole artistic problem as you saw in the ad in the times yesterday they get behind it financially they they're very they're utterly utterly gentlemanly and yet they keep on you you know they're perfect
1: well we, you and i have had long talks about the philosophy of being left alone and yeah. how that can ultimately produce the best work.
2: Yeah, but then you want like Arvin at Longworth too. When I did Father and Son, he comes in, he leaves you alone, he's supported, Then he says the one thing that that you need to hear. He says the one criticism that makes everything line up, and it and that's what you want. Not just somebody hurling hurling notes at you all the time, three quarters of which are utterly illiterate.
1: Or know. being absent uh, and unable to, you know, when you really openly need something. Yeah, to absolutely. Do not be there. Yeah. I think that I'm going to open the discussion now to the audience, who probably also
2: good questions. at that is Nikos. By the way, he's very helpful. Yeah, yeah.
1: And okay. uh, to supplement any of the questions I asked so the audience, Austin, yours. Jim, but I'm, I'm not going to be calling. I think you would do this. How was Lillian really in terms of what she had
2: talked about? Her life? Impossible. <laughs> she had lots of directory? Oh. How are you blocking the first scene? Over the phone. Well, I have, I, have, I, have, I have Mr. Marshall sitting on the sofa with Regina. Marshall's on the sofa? How are you going to do the scene? Trust me. He's on the sofa. She, Elizabeth is there to his right on the sofa. Then Uncle Ben is over. Uncle Ben is right? He's stage right? You can't play the scene. Oh, I, mean, I thought I was going to go mad. And the frustrating, thing, the frustrating thing about it was that every once in a while, like one day up at the vineyard, Martha's Vineyard, she, after we'd opened, she let forth some insights on the play, which were staggering. But, I mean, you have, but you're, but if she'd talked that way at the first, I think we might have gotten somewhere. But she was, um, she just is so competitive with the director that it's just appalling. I mean, and I finally said, Lillian, <laughs> people are going to be doing this play in a hundred years. Don't worry. We can slaughter this play, and it's not going to kill it. Just relax. I mean, take the, take the worst-case scenario. We're not going to kill the play. There's a movie of it. It's a famous play. A, there's a movie you like of it, even. I don't like it, but you like it. There's There's a... There's a, there's a, there's a It's revived all the time. It works with an audience like a son of a bitch. It has great roles. People are always going to do this play. Well, the critics will hate it. And the critics are always going to hate this play, Lillian. They are always going to hate it. We are not going to change, we're not going to save the reputation of this play for the critics, and we're not going to destroy the reputation of it with the audience. Nothing is ever going to do either one of those things. The critics hate the play, the audience loves it. It's a beautiful play. Stop it. I actually said that was she around he kicked her out of rehearsal once it, 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 and he he barred her from rehearsal it, and he, she was like his mother figure she made him a director and all that stuff and it was very heavy the day he kicked her out of rehearsal and, they were, and she wasn't his friend for six months and then he apologized to her once on a country road or something and then and, then, and, uh, and, uh, and, and she kept telling me you know when we were doing it how he apologized to her for his horrible treatment of her and he's, he's no fool you know and, and it, uh, uh, he did not say to her six months later of course I kicked you out you were making it impossible to work now because the poor woman was so infirm when we were doing it she wasn't at rehearsals she accused me of trying to keep her out of rehearsals actually who kept her out of rehearsals was her doctor I mean I uh, she said you've tried to keep me out from the start you know? and uh but what I'm leaving out is I, she's the funniest person I've ever worked with. I mean, I, I just... I mean, she was a barrel of laughs. And she was uh, very... She was the funniest person just to get together and talk to that I believe I've ever worked with. And and that is... You but know, a goes good wit is not
1: good collaboration.
2: No, but she's a lousy collaborator, but a great lady. You know, and I think that a tragedy... No, I, a pathos in her career was that she was a bad collaborator because I think she's a splendid writer I, I don't quite understand this contempt for her playwriting and uh, um, her plays are very rich and urgent and beautifully, beautifully dramatized and alive and, and worth doing and they will be done all the time and, and I think that, that um, I told her once I said your body of work has many more colors in it than, than you allow to show I mean, your work is very, has got a lot of different colors in it. And, um, which translated means, leave me the hell alone, you know. And, uh, uh, but she was an impossible collaborator. I, actually, I did say to her, I said, once in the thick of that, I said, look, in a year or two, let's find some theater that will let us do another part of the forest. And I, w- I will sit down with you two months before, and you'll come to every audition, and you will come to every rehearsal no matter what your doctor says and I will do exactly what you want because I like that play I don't like it as well as The Little Foxes but I like it and uh, she said, great, let's do it and uh, and we never did and I'm sorry we never did I, that would Were have you been, bargaining with her? No, I, I thought I I thought Oh, oh, let it in, Austin, just let it in. It was too late in Little Foxes to let it in. I mean, she would have wrecked the whole. In fact, she did wreck the whole production when we took it to London. She wouldn't allow us to use Andy Jackson's set. And if one more English director, opening night in London, came over to me and said, what did you do with that marvelous set that you had in America? I was gonna kill them. No, her, I would kill her. And, I mean, she destroyed... We we had to go back to the 1939 set by Howard Bay. She even said to me, now that you're using the proper set, you might want to go to the drama's play service edition and look up Herman's Blocking. I said, there I draw the line. There I draw the line. But actually, one day I did go off and sneak and look up Herman's Blocking, and I would would not be caught dead putting that blocking on the stage. And, and, uh, um, uh, but, I mean, the show was a third as good in London as it was, and it was all her fault you know so
1: no, mm. no other questions
0: on anything hi ray okay. did you ever see the production of another part of the voice in la yeah what did you think of that
2: not much yeah and 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 she she said to me she said i happened to be out there when that was playing so i went to see it and i saw her and she, and uh, they were oh it was a they wrote in the program how they they had included Miss Hellman in, in all their rehearsals and she had been and they made a big point of this it was just after Our Little Foxes had played L.A. And, and much was made of this in the press that this was a scrupulous production of Hellman as opposed to the travesty that we had put forth and, um, uh, and, and um, she said I told, I took George Schaefer the, the, man, the very good director who directed that show she said, I took George Schaefer out to a restaurant and I said, I don't like this, George. You do better work than Austin, but Austin's more talented. <laughs> I said, you said that to the man? No. It, and, and, of course, I didn't believe she ever said that at all. I think there are so many Chinese boxes of manipulation going on here. If she said it to George, why would you say that to a director? What would you be hoping to do? I think she told me she said it to him. And, uh, it, I mean, this to get something back from you. Well, flattery, her point was that I had talent, but I did lousy work, which I did not receive as flattering, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, uh, I, I didn't, I mean, talk about mixed signals. She was just, she was a, an amazing person. She really was. And, and I, all that craziness of her is in those plays, and all we were trying to do was bring it out, you know. But she, her sense of theater was wildly conservative.
1: Did she intervene with um, Maureen Stapleton and Elizabeth Taylor? And in speaking of that, are it, when you work with very formidable leading ladies, uh, do you ever find that you're in a position where you have to use a certain amount of psychological flattery? Or
2: Elizabeth, you just say, play the scene this way, and she does it. I mean, she, it's not like directing the leading lady at all. I mean, she's just a, there to do what you want her to do. And, um, do you think that
1: that's her she, minimal stage experience? No, that?
2: no. I think it's that she, from the time she was a little girl, she worked with all the great directors in Hollywood, and so her whole experience of acting is if, if you do what the director says, that's what happens. And uh, um, she's just a dream from that point of view. And Maureen kind of does what she wants to do, which happily is often brilliant, but um, there's not a lot of dialogue there but I mean it, but she's a great actress so I don't care
1: does she at least give you the illusion at the beginning of rehearsals she?
2: first two days of rehearsal, she sits there with open eyes and says tell me and then she gets up and says now I'll go here and now I'll go there <laughs> and it, but, it, but her I mean the, I was criticized for the blocking of her big scene uh Walter Kerr wrote see I remember every year. <laughs> Walter Kerr wrote how, it proves she's a great actress how she could survive the inept blocking of that thing. Maureen blocked it I happened to think her blocking was uncanny I, and I could be objective about it because it was not mine he, I thought he was wrong I thought her instincts of how to move she was constantly on the move in that scene the scene where she spills out her guts and her point was that, uh, that, 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 that a drinker to confess their drinking to people they am, they, they uh, um, emotionally trust, you're constantly having to move away from them because it's such a, you feel like a moving target. And I thought that was a brilliant, insight. that scene is always so goddamn sentimental, the woman sits there and has her emotional aria, you know, but with Maureen, it was, she really explored the behavior of a, of a woman, particularly in that time and place, confessing what at that time was a shameful secret, like her drinking, to people, particularly a niece, who loved her. And she just was constantly on the move And it, I thought it was very exciting And at any rate, it was integri- integrally bound up with what she was playing So I wasn't about to change it And I, I mean, it was I would, have, I would have blocked it much more uninterestingly than she did And uh, Irene Worth is another one She just
1: taking, Takes the ball into her
2: own No, no, she, she wants you to help her as did as did uh, uh, Geraldine Page. Would
1: you find? Would you uh, say that the that there is some kind of qualitative statement to be made about the, the um, uh, supreme esteem of an actor's sense of worth mm-hmm. it makes them more receptive to good directing? Yes,
2: so exactly. So a
1: good actor likes good directing.
2: I, I remember saying to Irene Worth once when we did uh, Circle in the Square, John Gabriel and this we we rehearsed that play after it opened. That's what she's like, and, and, and E.G. who played played partner. we just would have these rehearsals on Sunday mornings and things before a matinee and stuff. And, 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 she would, and I'd say, "You know, Irene, in that speech, you just, just remember what your objective is. I mean, there are so many, so many colors in it now, because the material, of course, is incredibly dense. There's so many colors in it that I don't know what objective is anymore." And she said, "That's right, that's right. Keep me simple. For God's sake, keep me simple. See, I think that a really good actor who has continued to act in the theater and who has remained serious about their acting all the time they've been acting and is, keeps on challenging themselves with difficult material becomes increasingly aware of their limitations and is impatiently trying to burst out of them. They know what their habits are, they know what they do, and they want you, to, I mean, so long as you're not cruel about it, or so long as you don't do it in a way that interrupts a process they need. They, they want you to help them pass them, not just to criticize them, but to help them pass them.
1: It sounds like you're talking about evolved people. Yes. In addition to artists, and that the opposite is true, that a very gifted person who's unevolved in that process can sabotage a whole production oh, because of yes. an ego process. Oh, yeah
2: yeah, 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 yeah. And I mean I've as an actor I've I've behaved in both of those ways. Uh you know, when directors sometimes have tried to move me past stuff. I've said, Now wait a minute, you're not gonna take that away from me. I've literally said that. And and uh, those words. <laughs> I need that you know. And then and then uh uh and then some every once in a while I've been uh visited with grace and I've said, Oh tell me when I do this this shit that I do, you know. And uh help me to do something else and, and I think that that's what actors I know this isn't an acting seminar but I think that's what actors have to aim for and the ones that and, the, and I've always found the greater the actor the more they do that I don't mean greatness I mean including some great actors who are unsung but the more they when I directed Laurie Metcalf in, in Loose Ends she really wanted to be moved Past. I know how to do this, Austin. I know how to do this. What else is there? You know, she would say. And, uh, and sometimes I'd be at a loss for words because she's very dazzling. Directed Geraldine Page in Ghosts.
1: Interesting, you're mentioning mostly women.
2: Yeah, I am. <laughs> I? Are there any um,
1: uh, male actors who have been this psychologically evolved that have
2: come oh, to rehearsal? Sure. you
1: know, from your experience, who have been eager to be moved past... E.G.
2: E.G. E.G. a lot Uh, Oh God A lot of the young actors last year In Fathers and Sons Christopher Collet Oh my God He never gives up He's incredible I thought that all these young actors Now were so jaded and cynical They were 20 and famous And all this stuff And they were uh, But he never He's like a terrier He won't let go of it
1: but, you know, actually, I just had an insight mm-hmm. that most of your really great productions, except the exception of Fathers and Sons last year, which was wonderful, are very much about women's stories.
2: Yeah, they are. Aren't they?
1: And uh, in, the, in a kind of, in that same wonderful way that Woody Allen is uh, uh, a great... Have uh, <laughs> I hit it a bad or good... I've point.
2: always been compared to Woody Allen as an actor, which sends me up the wall. And I, I'm honored to be compared to him as a director. But nobody until this moment has ever done that.
1: As a as a great uh, catalyst for the storytelling
2: of a woman. Well, um, yeah, I don't know why that is.
1: I wonder if, if, you know, even producers kind of subconsciously are interested and attracted to those gifts in you when they send you a script that calls for a great woman's part and then puts you in the situation of working with Kate Nelligan, Warren Stapleton, Elizabeth Taylor, live, Danner, Irene Worth. Who else? Yeah. Who else is on
2: that? List? Oh, lots of them. My wife. My wife. Um, yeah. Uh, Maria. Yeah, it all goes back to my mother, who was an act. In fact, the first play I ever directed was was a, a community theater production of The Glass Menagerie with my mother. Um, They they had open rehearsals. This is out in Ohio for the community, which, of course, the community never took advantage of. But they all used to come out with picnic suppers to watch us fight with each other Uh, um, in that play. Olympia Dukakis. Right. Um, Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I tend to like plays that are about that, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, but that's... (laughs) that's uh, great yeah also you know, what, you know what maybe also it is this just occurs to me if a play revolves around a great part for a man maybe subconsciously or even consciously I would rather be playing it myself
1: mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> that's true now, I mean I don't direct plays that have parts I directed Three Sisters four years ago at Steppenwolf it's a play I've always wanted to direct and will direct and it's one of the two or three shows I like the best that I've directed and um, I really really liked it but every director likes their production of Three Sisters, so don't take it uh, too seriously. But it was, a, it was a big success and everything, and it was great. But I was hell on the person who played Tuzenbach, who was a good actor, and who finally, through his own sheer ten, kind, of ten, kind of tenacity of spirit, was able to pull it off. But I'd had a, a huge success as an actor twice as Tuzenbach, and always considered it my best work. Oh, I was... And I... I was so blind i didn't even realize till like three weeks into rehearsal that i was causing this i mean i the scenes had to be played a certain way which i don't ever do with an actor i don't ever say early on it has to be like this now let's do it until you get it right i've never done that um but the um uh but i did with him i didn't even know i was doing it and then i realized what i was doing and i and i and so we did the Lanford Wilson translation he came up for the final rehearsal since so was there all through the previous and he watched kind of the first day he was there we did kind of a run through for him he said well they're all great except that guy playing Tuzenbach is so uptight it sticks out like a sore thumb I said well you know he's having problems with the role I mean I didn't <laughs> went right past me you know he's a good actor but for some reason he's having a problem with this I've totally forgotten that when he was helping me audition people for the other parts and he would read opposite them before rehearsals and he'd been brilliant <laughs> but, but thanks to my ministrations he was just a, he was a robot up there finally I just relaxed and I said Jeff play it however you want and he was fine he was excellent as a matter of fact so possibly I mean I, I don't know if I'll now ever direct Hamlet I mean it, <laughs> or if I do I don't want to I don't envy the actor who plays it and and um um so maybe that has something to do well, with
1: a, it. But that's a very interesting conclusion.
2: Even in parts that I'm not that right for, like Big Daddy and on you know, I'm I'm uh, I, I, I'm hard on on the guy, you know, and I and I lead them off into strange areas, and then I have to get them back somehow, you know. Uh, I, I mean, I I directed a very very vulnerable Big Daddy at Steppenwolf, and all through the previews that artistic directors there would say what have you done this makes no sense this man is a killer I mean, he's also a lot of other things but he's a killer and these scenes are, these great scenes are sitting there and we have a marvelous actor what have you done Austin? I said well I think it's you know I think it's fine and then finally I got religion right at the last minute and I, and I brought him to and the actor was very happy when, when I brought him there To the edge of the writing but I think I was directing this poor man to do my big daddy which is I think an event that will never take place anyway and and, uh, um, so maybe that has something to do with it that
1: satisfies me does it Mm -hmm. satisfy anybody else? Mm -hmm. I think that we're about ready to close so are there any more questions that we can stir up? well great Austin I love this had a good time. I hope everybody
0: else here yeah. Again, this is Hope Clark, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, the National Labor Union, celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members visit us on the web at www.ssdc.org. This online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theater Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theater is made through the words of the people who make theater. Visit them online at americantheaterwing.org.